We have explored some of the characteristics of the first jhana. But we need to keep going back over how do we get there. And we have to be very, very clear that in order to attain this unworldly happiness, so jhana, samadhi, is unworldly happiness. And the world, the Buddha says, is found within this body one fathom in length. What is the world? Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and activities of the mind. And these are the processing and stories and imagery, the memories you have, and the social idea of yourself in the world, your responsibilities and your worries and your regrets, etc. These stand between you and John. And if you want a holiday, you're going to have to take one. <laughs> and that means you've got to leave your life behind. Now, that can seem radical when you're conscious, but every one of you does something extraordinarily mystical every night. You go to sleep. That is, if only a few people on the planet did that, scientists would be studying that, and lots of the population wouldn't believe it really happens, you know. Oh, they're faking it. <laughs> but since everybody sleeps, it is a strange thing, isn't it? The shutting down of the story. Of course, you dream, and some of those dreams can be filled with the anxieties of life. They can be nightmarish. They can be worry dreams, etc. They can also be pleasant dreams. But at some point, the story stops, and it's very necessary. If, if you don't, if you can't sleep, you don't last long. You just won't survive. And long before you cease to survive, you will go mad. <laughs> You require sleep for health, and it means that you must stop this stuff about life. You must stop this story, the endless story of the past and the future and how many things there are to calculate and preoccupy yourself with and be distracted with. If you can't, of course, that's what, you know, the, this insomnia, difficulty sleeping, the mind won't shut down, and that's a curse. So you see what is required for sleep, dreamless sleep, is the absolute cessation of the activities of the mind. And it's not harmful, it's actually how you make your life safe. It's, it's something safe to do. So you've got to understand that when you're trying to do this jhana, it's not dangerous. It's a level of refreshment which occurs while you're actually conscious and awake. And to set aside your life, your life is just these processes of the mind. If you go off to university and you ask you, you know, your 10 university students how it's going, they may all be getting sort of a B average, but they, some of them are terrified, some of them are enjoying themselves, some of them are not worried, some of them are very worried, some of them are determined, some of them are carefree. 
they're assessing the whole situation differently. They're projecting over the situation. So this is what we do. But this is, you've got to be very heightened awareness of this, that your life, your, that, that is your life. That's the life of the mind, the creation of the social being that you are and the storylines and so forth. That has to stop. You cannot enter the jhana with that. You have to stop that. And it doesn't have to be rough or anything like that. You don't go to sleep by forcing yourself to go to sleep, do you? When somebody's having trouble sleeping, what do we do? We don't just say, well, just smarten up, you know. Shape up. Go to sleep. Well, sometimes we do that to kids. <laughs> now you smarten up. You go to sleep now. <laughs> yes, mom. <laughs> As if <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And if sleep is disturbed, well, what do you do? You examine the causes of it. And same, the same with, if you can't allow the mind to let go of all of these, the, the psychic irritants, which can, and some of them, of course, you remember that in terms of desire and so forth, that some of them are pleasurable, that the, particularly the, the, the imagination, the pleasure imagination is, is pleasurable or the desire, you know, objects of desire and so forth, to think about them are, is pleasurable, to remember them pleasurable. But, and so it's hard to sometimes pull yourself away from that. It's hard to think about it as, a, as an irritant, as a psychic irritant, but it is. Because there's always something missing in that, the creation of, of lack. So this has to... You just have to be fully aware of that. So that's the preconditions, and it's not that, I mean, we, we go through all the details of this, the endless talk about the five hindrances and their, the methods of removal of the five hindrances. The first simply being dismissal, and the next being replacement. And one of the replacements is indeed some form of samadhi or positive spiritual thoughts, such as loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, as replacing the harassments of anger and resentment, etc. So you replace some of the ones that are more negative, you can bring up in your mind more or less what is called compassion for your future self. This is called Hiri Otapa in Pali, and it is a wholesome fear and concern for who you are going to become. It's interesting because you have to kind of, uh, you have to sometimes displace your present comfort for the sake of the future person you will become. Not everybody has that idea, and you will see in the in the criminal class, that they don't have much compassion for anybody else, including their future self. So they'll act present for present gain with dismissing the fact that they're going to encounter some big problems <laughs> because of this action. But that's manana, that's tomorrow, that's some other time, that's some other person, really, even though it will be them. <laughs> So it's a strange thing. The Buddha is emphasizing this stream of being that we are, 
we're not a thing that travels through time. We're a, a stream of events. One domino falls down and hits the next one and just falls down and the next one hits the next one. The first domino doesn't go to the end of the line. It just knocks into the next one and falls down. That's what we are moment by moment is this series of dominoes, consciousness and feeling and perception and even the body is just a series of dominoes in time just knocks into one another. It doesn't, you are not who you were yesterdays. There's a Zen saying, uh, wood does not become ash. There is wood and there is ash. There's no wood in the ash. That thing is gone. And that is you. You are burning as well. Your former self is merely ashes. Each day is kind of a, a log of wood, and at night it's just ashes. And so this, this is just a process, and it's sometimes hard to concern ourselves with that other being that will be in our future, but we have to bring it up so that we, when we're distracted and unable to get into these things, we have to have more concern and care for ourselves. Say, this is important. If I want myself to be happy, I will really have to let go of these things that have been preoccupying me. And this is, of course, habit structures. I've been habitually worried and immersed in a storyline about my life. This is very radical. I mean, the Buddha is just suggesting some absolutely radical ideas. Most people do not ever think this way. He's saying you can stop that. You can stop, more or less stop your life. What would happen to you if you did? I mean, some people are desperate enough to actually stop their life. They do it with a gun or something. They, it's not necessary because that's not your life. Your life is just the thoughts and the turmoil and the misdirected energies. So this is something the Buddha is saying, stop that. It will be for your benefit. People don't know there is, that's a possibility that there is a door. If you just step through that door, you're in a different world. And the jhanic realms are forms of heaven beyond the senses. So you have kind of sensual heavens, which you can imagine, whatever uh, the best that you can imagine in terms of sensory pleasures or sort of uh, divine experiences, but there is stuff beyond that that the consciousness can achieve. And that's the state we call the jhana. So the preliminary is to talk to yourself like this. You have a few weeks when you really can slow the processes down. Now, some of them have a lot of energy. You may have noticed. You know, the energy can keep persisting on and on. But, you know, after a week or so, you start to kind of, you might not even really notice. It starts to subside, you know. And every now and then you just catch yourself thinking, wow, I, I really haven't thought much since when? <laughs> it's kind of like, a subtle, a sea change, as Shakespeare puts it. Undergoing this, just you know, the stuff at the bottom of the ocean just gradually undergoes a sea change, little accumulations. It's not always easy to know what's happening. Every now and then you become aware, oh, yeah, I'm actually feeling different. I'm in a different kind of 
mode of being. And so this is, the Buddha is talking about this gradual process, and it takes time. But that's the essence of it, that's the overall structure, is that you have to clearly understand that how you generate your life and how you plan your life and how you remember your life and all that kind of stuff is not part of this experience. This is particularly outside of that experience. It's not analysis of your life, it's not understanding your life or anything. That, that Those are all interferences with this process. And secondly, that it's safe, it's restorative, it's like sleep, and that if you can do this, your mind feels extraordinarily cleansed. So it's kind of like the alarming experience of getting a professional massage if you've not had one. Some other person is <laughs> manipulating your body. This may be alarming, but after you get up, it's kind of like, oh, I feel entirely different. So this is the massage of the mind. In fact, they even talk about it in that way, that the mind is made malleable and wieldy. <laughs> uh, as if somebody has given you a brain massage. And just open the top of your head and just, yeah, let's work out some of those kinks there. Ah, does that feel good? <laughs> yeah, it is to make the mind flexible again, because it gets rigid. Rigidity is that it goes down the same habitual structures again and again. And you see this in people. that Some, some people they start to become rigid by the time they're 13, 14. They say the same thing. They react in the same way. And others, they want to learn. They want to stay flexible. They want to try different things. And for the person who's very rigid, that's threatening. They don't understand it. The person who is made a few changes, has realized new things, has experienced the growth. It's a beautiful thing. They're all then always looking for it. And so this is the samadhi is how to is how to grow again. And how to grow is that you have to undo a lot of the habitual tendencies of the mind. And it's just a you know, it's just a story generator. It's a generator of these processes of thought, and it's, especially in our time, too much thought. This uh, frontal cortex is just over overstimulated and overactivated like no other time in human history. And it's, of course, uh, praised and supported, but it's a curse at the same time. If that's all you can do, even very bright people who have good thoughts it's not good enough to live there. It's just not adequate. It's not sufficient. It's, it's, it's some, in some ways, it's cruel, you know, to be condemned, to live in endless story, tell endless production of thoughts. It's just cruel. So this is something that was known in history, uh, discovered and explained by the Buddha, and has been virtually unknown in other cultures until the present, and even now in the present, we even find in Buddhist countries and, and certain movements and time in Buddhist countries where it's set off to the side or neglected. In fact, that's exactly what it is, neglected. Because there's an uncomfortable transition to it. The, to get there requires this removal from the ordinary sensory stimulation. And that can feel, you feel 
dry sometimes, you feel stagnant sometimes, you're unstimulated, you wonder, what am I doing? You know, I could be having fun, you know. And, and mo most people are very impulsive and they want immediate rewards. So you're deliberately experiencing some sensory deprivation because you're interested and curious and you're also thinking, well, my future self in a day or two or a week or two will benefit from this. It'll be a new thing. So I'm willing to postpone a few drops of honey, a few little sweetnesses for something of a larger reward. And this is why most people won't put up with that. They won't do that. They just, they don't have enough concern, interest. Their future is not strong enough for them. In some ways, they're neglectful of themselves. They neglect themselves. They don't care enough about their future self to sometimes postpone gratification for their present self. So this is what the Buddha is saying. You know, this path goes against the stream of the world. You know, he's saying that because he's, it's not that they haven't heard about it. It's just that human nature is a certain way. And a large portion of the population just, they might even hear this, but they don't want to participate. It's just not going to happen. So if you've heard this and you decided to participate, that means you're, you're a bit of an adventurer and you're curious and you're willing to give it a shot and work through things, etc. But you should know, of course, that it's going against the stream of the world. But it goes up, it goes upstream, it goes to higher things. So it's worth it. Now the effects of this is that one feels uh, extraordinary health is what it is. It's super normal. It's extraordinary health. It's extraordinary well-being. Lucidity, clarity, pleasurable whole body emotion and well-being. You shouldn't get carried away with that. It's not incomprehensible like some sort of, you know, epileptic seizure or something like that. It's just like don't make it something incomprehensible. It's just the best you ever felt, that's all. <laughs> and sometimes you have felt good, and there's been, there's been minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> it's surprising, you know. Uh, there's a, the great essayist Montaigne, you know, I think it was 16th century or something. And he's meditating on how the world is and human happiness. And he talks about a king, a well-known king in Spain who, you know, they inherit these, he inherited a kingdom and he kept a diary. And uh, his uh, reign was quite long and his kingdom was abundant and his own personal wealth was high and there were no wars during his life. And at the end of his life, he said in his diary that he'd had 14 good days. <laughs> Out of the 47 years of uh, peaceful reign as a, as a king, 14 days of those had been really pretty good. <laughs> Happy. <laughs> we want to do better than that, actually. His happiness would have not been of the quality of this, you know. It would have been 
some sort of harmonious relationship with your friends or relatives and a, a good dinner and a nice weather and a few things like that. And that's about it. That's what a king gets. <laughs> so we, it's worth our investment in this. This is, um, this could be a high return investment. Let's put it this way. Uh, if we can just get a glimpse of it, even. We realize then there are other conditions of consciousness. And then we realize they're arrived at by a process of restraint of senses, uh, letting go of the story and preoccupations of our lives. And that means all our family and all our relatives and friends and the political situation and all of that just has to go as it does when you're sound asleep. But in this case, we get to be awake and free. And it's a very strange and illuminating experience because you realize there's another dimension of being. None of these stories are going on. And you're fine in the world. You're not, nothing falls apart. You don't suddenly become incompetent or negligent or irresponsible or anything of the sort. If anything, you will become more competent, more considerate, more of all of these things. You see that monastic communities have survived uh, 2,500 years. And while whole countries and civilizations have collapsed around them, right? People are very busy, you know, accumulating wealth and making war on each other and making all kinds of craziness around. And monks are like, all I want to do is meditate, you know, really, just, <laughs> you know, we don't want anything, just peace. <laughs> and every now and then the whole thing around them collapses. They have to run for the hills, <laughs> vanish. Or sometimes they don't get out. They get, you know, heads cut off. So, it, but it has survived. While countries, how, while empires have collapsed, this simple, what appears to be a house of cards, mon monasteries are often, especially if you live in them, you, you think, this isn't going to work. How can this work? <laughs> But yet, although they're, they, they seem very flimsy and everything, they, they work. They keep going on, and sometimes for a thousand years, in, in just in the same place, just one generation after another. While turmoil and craziness and chaos happens around it, with those who are busy doing things. So this is one of the crown jewels of the meditative path, of the spiritual path, the crown jewels of the path are these samadhi experiences. This puts you in a supernormal condition, and this puts you in, in league with long-term monks and nuns who have lived that life. If you can find your way to this, you're in an association, you're in a special group. Now, you know, when they describe the sangha, there's a couple of different kinds of sangha, and the sangha usually is the conventionally ordained sangha, is, the, is what is meant by sangha, and then the 
the lay community plus the Sangha community is called the Parisa, the larger community. The lay people are not included in the conventional Sangha. They're part of something called the Parisa, the assembly of the forest, uh, the monks, nuns, lay women, lay men. That's called the Parisa. But, you know, quite often in the West, lay communities refer to themselves as the Sangha, but the, sort of the officially, that's the ordained group is the Sangha. But there's another Sangha, and that which the Buddha uses the word Sangha for, and that's the Arya Sangha. So that the Arya Sangha is anybody who's attained any of the stages of enlightenment. And uh, so that's lay people, lay women, lay men, monks, and nuns. And that's a, that's a spiritual Sangha. That's something outside of the conventions of robes or not robes. And uh, this, uh, certainly in the time of the Buddha, there were many who did, of the lay community and of the monastic community, many who entered the Arya Sangha. And if one can enter the Arya Sangha, then one can enter this Samadhi Sangha. Samadhi is not as exalted an achievement as enlightenment, sotapanna, or beyond. But it's supernormal. So the supernormal starts at samadhi. And this is, you can see this in the Vinaya for monks and nuns, is that monks and nuns, we have a rule, and sometimes it comes as a surprise to the lay community. Monks and nuns, the Theravada Buddhist community, who follow the original Vinaya, are not allowed to claim supernormal states to the lay community. So you're not, it, when monks, if you see Theravada monks talking about how enlightened they are, run. <laughs> You'll see in other, other traditions, like Zen traditions and so forth, there's a lot of this kind of talking about open talk about they're enlightened and so forth. That's not, we're not supposed to do that. That's against the rules. And then they have in the Vinaya, so what is supernormal attainments? What are you supposed to not claim? Anything to do with samadhi and enlightenment. Samadhi is supernormal attainment, which you're not supposed to talk about with the lay people, not supposed to claim, boast about, etc., and then there are others, you know, kind of psychic powers and supernormal things. That also you should not be claiming uh, in front of the lay community. Those kind of things can be talked about amongst fellow ordained monastics. You can say, I think I have attained uh, such and such, or I have attained a second John or something like that. And then you might be, you want to, you want to talk to an experienced monk, uh, you know, a junior monk or, or even a, a senior monk who hasn't attained it wants to talk to a junior monk who has. And that can happen. It's not, it's not just kind of a, in your third year, you always get the first jhana, and in your fifth year, you always get the second jhana. And it doesn't work that way. It's just not to do really with time. It has something, some influence on that, but depending on uh, the group you're with and your own capacities and, and endeavors. So then one can discuss or claim it to each other, etc., but that shows you that that's a supernormal, that's where the, the, the break comes from 
normal. And then above the, once the samadhi is not normal anymore, it's not normal. And that also, it's safe for the lay people. I wouldn't talk too much about, if you think you have jhana, I wouldn't be claiming it to your fellow community. Lots of people do. They don't know that. I mean, there's no offense from, for you. There is an offense for monks and nuns to do that, but there's no offense for you. You're not bound by these rules. But you should probably, you want to discuss it with a, a teacher of this or a monastic who is willing to talk about it with you. But that's who you should be talking to about things like that. These are special. This is not normal. You, you should not be, it's kind of like your IQ. You really shouldn't be saying, you yeah, know, well, 160, whatever, you know. <laughs> like, just keep it to yourself, will you? <laughs> uh, yeah. So these are kind of special as well. Like, there's, you really don't want to be at all tempted to have any kind of ego attached to this too. You start getting a little pride about these things. No, don't. Don't contaminate it with any kind of pride or boastfulness at all. That, that can interfere with it. So this is a little secret meeting in the hills that you, you went to, you know, a little convention, quote, a resort that you went to, and you don't discuss what took place. <laughs> it's just our little secret. <laughs> if you... Have a taint. No, you know, you're quite free to uh, tell your friends that it was just a bummer, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> Nothing. I was, it was just, I was <laughs> fried the whole time. So that's fine. You can say that. But if you have actually feel like you have, have had some breakthroughs and so forth, this is really very delicate matter and should be kept to yourself and discussed with only people you think really are qualified to talk about it with. It's not common chat, really. It's not something like that. So I had mentioned in previous talks that I would discuss some similes for the jhana, but I have used up all our time, so I won't talk about it tonight. <laughs> Two nights from now, I will talk more about similes. We, we have to bathe in this in every way. We have to get the idea a thousand ways. And that's why, you know, I keep talking and talking. <laughs> like, it, it's another dimension of being accessible to humans who are interested and who have the capacity. But it's not like normal stuff and therefore we have to describe it in a hundred different ways sometimes to get the idea because it's about what happens in your head and it's very difficult to show that I can't express that out it's not something we can all look at it's something that happens in there and it's very hard to communicate like what happens in one person's brain about how it happens in another person all we can do is just sort of wave our hands and and talk, <laughs> and which we will continue to do. <laughs>